following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome this evening. We're glad that you're here to uh, be with us for our service tonight. Let's open our copy of God's Word to 1 Chronicles chapter 20. We are making our way through here, but it's... uh, there are a lot of chapters in this Old Testament, so still got a little ways to go. You remember when we began reading through Scripture together? 2008. One chapter in the morning service. Uh, no, I think it was one chapter in the evening services, yes. And then I began to say to myself, well, we're going to not make it through here in any fast way. We're going to go to Sunday morning services and Sunday evenings, and we finished the New Testament and we're making our way through the, through the old. But some of these prophets are very long. And, of course, some of these narratives are also quite long as well. But we're in First Chronicles chapter 20. We believe there is a great prophet in the reading of God's Word. And we're instructed by the Apostle Paul through Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So we do that. First Chronicles 20, uh, the text says this. It happened in the spring of the year at the time... Kings go out to battle that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. Then David took their king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold and there were precious stones in it and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, with iron picks, and with axes. So David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now it happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibekai, the Hushathite, killed Sippai, who was one of the sons of the giant, and they were subdued. And there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lachmi, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature with twenty-four fingers and toes, six on each hand and six on each foot, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, killed him. These were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants." That's First Chronicles chapter 20. We'll leave the uh, next segment and the census and that whole episode to the next time. All right. Does anyone have uh, any questions for me this evening? I know I didn't announce this before, but maybe something's been bothering you or you have wondered about something, some Bible question. I want to give you a moment to uh, ponder that. And uh, if you don't, that's fine, because I have some things in Matthew and in Philippians that I can go over. Okay, remind me. Okay, so John's question has to do with Judas and what did it look like that he was sent out with the 12, 11, other 11, to minister. And uh, they were casting out demons and preaching and all of that sort of thing. Um, so and what, you know, what were his motivations and so on? Boy, that's a tough question, as I indicated before. Um, I speculated when I spoke about this with John earlier that I, I, I suspect that the pattern, as we see from the scriptures, was that the disciples went out two by two. And uh, I can easily imagine a situation where Judas was sent out with his partner and he kind of shrank back a little bit and didn't do the main, uh, the main speaking or demon casting, you know, or whatever, exercising kinds of activities. Uh, I could easily imagine that. Um, 
I could also imagine a situation in which he is involved in that kind of activity um, because God did give, or Christ did uh, assign him the power to be able to do that. So let's think about um, examples where unbelievers in the scriptures are moved or motivated, uh, empowered by God's spirit. For example, I have taken it to be the case that King Saul in the Old Testament was not a true believer in God. He uh, had a very checkered uh, situation, as, as many of the kings did, but uh, in the end he went to a witch and uh, tried to call up a dead man to get guidance instead of getting guidance from God and so on. A very big mess. Did not show fruit of salvation. Was very much uh, murderous at heart and so on. But God used him. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, you recall. He prophesied at the beginning of his um, kind of public um, ministry, if you will, his public service. Um, and then, of course, at some time after that, First Samuel chapter 16, the Spirit of God left Saul and uh, came upon David, who was anointed to be the king and wasn't for some years until Saul was dispatched. Um, but Saul did do things for God. He did serve God. God also used Isaiah in the 40s. I can't remember which chapter, but he used Cyrus, king of the Persians, as his servant uh, as well. He did things for God, although not, this, not of this magnitude. So I can certainly imagine the possible uh, case where Judas is exercising some kind of uh, divine power. We have another example, Balaam. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament who was a greedy prophet, but evidently God overruled his false prophecy and gave him some true prophecies about the nation of Israel. Remember that situation? You remember your Old Testament narratives there? And so, you know, even there, there's an exa another example of somebody who's certainly not a believer who is exercising those kinds of uh, miraculous powers or prerogatives, prophecy particularly in that case. Um, and finally, uh, I would add uh, Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. And since we're in Matthew, or I am at least, I'll just move my Bible back a few pages and go there. It says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven... Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Well, Judas could have said that, right? Uh, but then Jesus can say, I will, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there's a kind of great deception that is possible in the life of a person who um, lives like that and can deceive themselves even in doing religious works, significant religious works, uh, whether, whether these are fake or real, it's not specified, but um, it may in fact be that now as I turn my attention to a little bit of the psychology of Judas, which is touching in your question as well, John, he could have been deeply deceived about himself. Self-deception could have been a very big part of his personal way of thinking. Judas, you have a question mark on your face. <laughs> oh, yes. So the, the, the psychology would also include that he liked perhaps the uh, renown, the influence, the power, the abilities uh, to do those things, to be associated with this famous person, but... Uh, you know, who knows how the kind of ebb and flow of his thinking went along the way, but, you know, by the end of the uh, three, three and a half years, uh, it's become evident to him that uh, Jesus is not going to maybe do what he had hoped he would do, which is overthrow the Romans and, and start a political upheaval and all of that, and so as a very disillusioned person, perhaps, uh, he says, look, I'm, I'm going to get rid of this guy. The reality is, of course, we know that Judas was indwelt by Satan himself. Satan entered into him, it says, there around the time of the Last Supper and uh, induced him to do uh, those things. So there's no question that Judas was 
not a believer because, well, we talked about this yesterday in the men's meeting, but uh, when the Spirit of God is indwelling a person, there is no vacancy. We'll talk about that tonight again in Matthew chapter 12. No vacancy in that person's life for a demon or the devil to come in and and take reign in that person's life. So clearly, clearly an unbeliever, clearly the son of perdition, the Lord said, and destined to carry out this very bad but necessary function in the will of God to betray the Lord, to fulfill prophecy, and to induce or be kind of enable the Pharisees and the scribes to kill Jesus. So... Um, let me bring the question into a modern uh, application. There are lots of people who do very religious things. Uh, there are even people who are convinced that they speak in tongues, give words of knowledge, give prophecies, um, who are convinced that they do some kind of healing or they've observed uh, the power that God has worked through them to heal people. Uh, but they hold to unsound doctrine, not gospel doctrine. They're not truly followers of God or of Christ. So they have this deeply self-deceived idea that they are spiritual people. You know, you've talked to people like that, haven't you? People who are very spiritual. You, you, you run into that, brother, on the campus? Well, I have a, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual person. Yeah, but you're not really if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life. Um, you, you may be saying, I'm a religious person. I observe kind of religious things or I'm concerned about the conscience or uh, good works or something like that. But uh, there are people today who could be in the same boat of self-deceived and think they're doing the right thing, think they're fine with the Lord, think that their good works are, are sufficient, say, or something else, and they're not, it's not right, it's not true. So um, I would, I, I've parked on that idea of self-deception in my answer, John, because I think there's, there's something there. I can't be sure, of course, because I can't get into his head, um, not that I would want to, but... Uh, we talked about self-deception. I think we did a whole message on what that is. And there's actually a very interesting study that I've said many times could be done further on that because self-deception is one of those things that we have all have experience with in our lives. We've deceived ourselves about certain things. We've justified our behaviors or our thoughts, our sins. Um, we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we're better than we are uh, or, and, and then the problem is we, we, you know, even if you're made aware of the things or you know inherently that something is not right, but you've layered over top of that all these layers of self-justification or whatever it is that you've layered on top of there to make it so that you feel good about yourself, then uh, you, you run into a dangerous, dangerous situation. We see this in Romans chapter 1 where people know God, but they deny him. And so they, they have somehow, although they have this inherent knowledge of God, and the way I picture that inherent knowledge of God, even for the deepest uh, atheist, you know, the person with the most deep-seated feelings of atheism who is convinced there is no God, which is not logically possible, but let's suppose for a moment, just for sake of argument, that, it, that they can do that. They will, when they face God in divine judgment, they will have that kind of, I'll call it a sinking feeling in their stomach, like, I knew, I knew that God existed. When, when they see the revelation of God and all those layers of self-justification and all of that are peeled away and they're laid bare, naked before God, as it were. Remember Hebrews chapter 4, the, this, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know all of that. And you know the, the idea that the, the, the one with whom we have to do can just see right through us. That self-deception will be melted away. 
Um, and, you know, by and by, I think Judas experienced some of that after the deed was done. You know, he had this, his conscience began to work on him, not in a saving way, but in a regretting way that he has done some terrible thing. And he had, of course, done a very terrible thing uh, to, to, the, to Christ. So humans are complicated beings and have this whole bunch of stuff going on inside of them, justification and rationale and reasoning and thoughts and, 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 and you know, self-deception in this case. So I think there was a lot of self-deception going on there. But from the outside, looking in, I wonder, John, if it would have been a keen observer's observation that something's not quite the same with Judas as with the other apostles, but I can't, maybe during the time when it's happening, can't quite put my finger on it. But after the fact, you look, you think about it, and you say, man, actually, yeah, I can see that. He was never never really on on the up and up. And of course... I forgot to mention the whole business about him being the treasurer of the group and stealing money from the, the treasury of that you know, team. I mean, think about a team of itinerant ministers, 12 plus 1, 13, perhaps others. There were some people that closely followed along with them, and they would have expenses. They had to you know, buy food and maybe stay places and travel and whatever. I mean, not everything was free just because, you know, it was the Lord. Should have been, but (laughs) not necessarily was. So, you know, he had that whole issue as well going on in the background of this money problem. Um, But that didn't become evident until later, uh, later on. So back to what I was saying a moment ago, an external observer could have been deceived. If Judas was deceived, an external observer could have been deceived, and Judas could have been involved in some of these works simply because Christ gave him the power to do that, and uh, that would, in fact, that would attempt to mask Judas's own estimation of himself, but also certainly the estimation of others as they looked on. So, I hope this is not just merely an exercise in uh, sanctified speculation, but uh, you know, it is interesting to think deeply about what Judas, what was going on with him, because it warns us away from this dangerous self-deception that uh, would allow us to go on for months and years thinking that we're okay with God when we're not okay with God at all. And so may God spare us from that kind of self-deception, even if we're doing uh, very good works. Uh, you probably know well, uh, John, from your dad's teaching and uh, interests in theology and historical theology, some preachers who were preachers before they were Christians. And uh, I can't, I, I'm trying to think of a name right now, it's just not coming to my brain, but you've heard of people like that who preached and preached and preached and God used them. And remember what I said this morning. When Paul said that I was in prison, I am in prison, and yet this has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, I said this statement this morning that not even the ill motivations of gospel preachers can stop the gospel from advancing. And God can even use, and he has, strangely, from time to time, people who are unsaved, who if they are doing something you know, relative to this, if they're proclaiming the truth, that people could be saved from that ministry. Yeah, if they read the Word of God, if the unsaved person reads the Word of God and somebody's hearing them and says, wow, I, I, you know, the power's in the Word, it's not in the minister of the Word. It's God who gives the increase. So uh, that, and that could, be, uh, you know, could be the case, that that's what happened uh, with Judas, that he was used by God as an instrument, but he was himself not a clean instrument. God can do that. But we understand that God best uses holy instruments in his hands, and that's the kind of instrument that we should be before him. So, interesting question, John. Has that brought up anything else anybody's wondering about? 
Yes, Q, question. Right. Yeah, the question is, what was it like for his partner if they did go out two by two? Uh, and of course, and sometimes they were in the group, the larger group. So, what was it like for this partner or for them to go out? And, uh, and minister this way? I mean, was it evident to this partner? Was it something didn't seem quite right? Was he not pulling his weight in the group project, so to speak, uh, of doing this uh, ministry or what? It's hard to say. We don't know who that partner was, and we're not told any of that. But one thing that is, um, that is mm, I would say, uh, comforting is that the Lord and his group of small disciples did have problems. He had one big problem who was involved with you know, embezzlement and, and lying and, and being a deceiver, and so that happens. Uh, well, he, he, the Lord chose all of those for the particular purpose for which they were, and he knew that he was choosing a, a character that would end up, end up betraying him. Very sadly so. All right, looks like we're run out of uh, questions there. So let's turn our Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 12. We have a before us in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse uh, 43, and a kind of obscure passage of Scripture that maybe you've wondered about uh, what, it, what it means. The Lord actually is beginning here to teach in a parabolic or parable method which doesn't really start in earnest until chapter 13. Uh, But he does that here to try to get across a lesson to the people of Israel and to the leadership and a warning uh, for them. After he has kind of been uh, in conflict here for the whole chapter with the Pharisees and the scribes about the Sabbath, about his miraculous work, uh, about uh, healing on the Sabbath, Uh, his disciples eating food on the Sabbath or gathering it, I suppose they accused him of. Um, We saw about the house divided against itself cannot stand. uh, The Lord uh, healed this person who was blind and mute and demon-possessed, and and the Pharisees couldn't stand it. The multitudes were amazed. They thought, uh, the the multitudes thought, this is the son of David. The Pharisees couldn't have that, and they they said, well, this guy casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And the Lord re- uh, reveals to them that they are committing the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So he says, look, you, a tree is known by its fruit. So this blasphemy is coming out of blasphemous hearts. Uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's uh, Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, 12, 34. Remember that verse? It's a very useful verse. When you say things that you ought not to say, you know they come from your heart not from you know, someone else, it's not someone else's fault, but yours. And uh, so the Lord then uh, has to deal with the scribes and Pharisees who ask a sign from him. And this passage was very uh, frustrating to go over because you kind of wonder, why are they asking for a sign? Think with me about this. They had been given multitudes of signs, people being healed, raised from the dead, forgiven of their sins, demons cast out, blind seeing, mute you know, speaking, deaf hearing, and so on. Why were they asking for a sign now? Again, they, they weren't going to believe it even if he gave him a sign. And I pointed our attention to Isaiah chapter 7 uh, in that section where the Lord tells through Isaiah, uh, Ahaz the king, ask yourself a sign. And He said, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. So the Lord said through Isaiah, well, I'm going to give you a sign. The sign is this, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's the sign. And and the time period that it would take that virgin-born son to grow up to a point where he knows to tell the evil and the good, like he's reached an age of, you know, a few years, in that short amount of time, these kings that are coming against you, Ahaz, are going to be thrown off. So that's an interesting passage 
But what I connect, how I connected it to what we're doing here, because it's the only other passage in the Bible that I know of that talks about asking a sign. Um, there are others that, that talk about, you know, choose, you know, this sign or that sign. I'm just thinking right now, choose, uh, like, you know, should the sundial go forward 10 degrees or back 10 degrees? That's a little bit of a different situation. Here you have uh, them asking for a sign from the Lord, and there in Isaiah, it's Ahaz, you're supposed to ask a sign. But the fact is, the Pharisees were speaking to the sign of Isaiah, and they didn't realize they don't need to ask a sign. The guy standing, the God-man guy standing before them is the sign. He is the sign. He is the, the virgin-born child, the God with us, Emmanuel. If they would only open their eyes, they could have asked and tried to find out you know, what circumstances were surrounding his birth. They could see that he was fulfilling the uh, prophecies in Isaiah about one who would come, the Messiah servant who would raise people from the dead and cause the blind to see and the lame to leap and all of that, but their eyes were closed. They were blinded in their pride and rage against him. And so the Lord rebukes them and says to them, look, uh, okay, uh, we'll give you a sign. Not right now, but there will be a sign. It will be the sign of the prophet Jonah. He was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Obviously speaking about his death and, and his burial and his resurrection when the earth spit him out from the tomb. And then he says, because you're so evil, the people to whom Jonah went to speak and they repented, they will stand up in the judgment and they will judge you because you are more wicked than them. You Jews are more wicked than those Gentiles because they repented. You're not repenting in the face of the sign that God sent according to Isaiah. And then, of course, he added the queen of the south or queen of Sheba would rise up in, in judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Somebody greater than Solomon is right here standing before you and you're not listening. So now he's going to give them a warning, and he's really telling them. Matthew 12 and the flow of the book is really the kind of the climax of the rejection of the king. We have the, you know, the crowds marveling at his teaching in, in Matthew 5, 6, or yeah, 5, 6, and 7. We have his works in 8 and 9. But even in 9 and 10, the, the Pharisees are beginning to accuse him of being possessed by the devil. And... By chapter 12 here, the, their, uh, you could say their rejection is complete. There's no going back for them. They've committed the unpardonable sin. Their hearts are hardened against him. And then the Lord says this parable. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, verse 43, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. And he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. So I want you to get the big picture first, that this is a parable speaking about demon possession in an individual person, and that person being rescued, we could say, from that demon possession only to be plunged into a worse situation at the end when seven more plus the original one, eight altogether come in and take over his life. That situation, the Lord says, is like what it is or will be with this wicked generation. In other words, if this generation persists on the path that it is going down, that it looks like it's following right now, then it will be for them like it is for this man who is overrun with demonic activity. Let's just observe some things about the passage and reiterate that thought in our minds. We're not really talking here in the end about just demon possession in an individual. We're trying to get to the lesson that the Lord is doing, giving them the warning that he's giving them by so saying this, this account. So I mentioned this morning that I, I quote, crowdsourced this message. What I meant by that was that I got up in the on the chalkboard here in the room yesterday with the men at our 8 to 9.30 uh, Bible study. And 
in our prayer time after that. But I said, okay, guys, here's the passage, these three verses. Give me observations and questions about this passage. So I have, let's see, one, two, three guys here. So they could actually come up here and fill in now some of the things that they talked about, and Jansen doesn't want to do that now. <laughs> he wants to sit back there with his arm around his wife and just be comfy. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't mind that either, by the way, does she? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what we were doing there in that activity was to say that we want to just practice our Bible study tools and techniques, our methods, and what we do is we make a bunch of observations, we ask a bunch of questions, and what we're kind of doing is we're kind of breaking the text down into pieces, if you will. You kind of look at it like we, we take it, we kind of disassemble it, we look at it, look at all the parts to it, find out how they move and how they're greased and connected and all the mechanisms of this machine, and then we put it all back together again, and we see how to summarize the operation of this machine. And in this case, we, I decided to take this because it was the, this passage because it was the next one on our, on our agenda. And I said, you know, this is a bit of an obscure passage. It's a little weird, you know, a little odd, a little maybe you wonder what's going on here. So when I find those kinds of passages, I say, you know, there's, there's some profit there because we'll find out, we'll learn something. We'll find out what the Lord is trying to say. So we start with uh, some observations. We already, I already observed to you that this is a parable. Uh, that's the genre or form of this passage. Um, uh, an illustration, it tells a little story about a guy, and that story has a lesson to it. Um, it says an unclean spirit. I just want you to observe that an unclean spirit is the same thing as an evil spirit. Okay? Uh, an, an, an evil spirit is an evil fallen angel, which is a demon. Okay, so some people have asked, where did where did demons come from? Well, they're they were angels created by God who followed Lucifer. Now we know Satan, or as the devil, in his rebellion against God, they followed him in that, rebelled with him, and they became what we know as demons. So they're essentially of the same substance as angels. Not, they don't have a body unless God allows them to appear in a bodily form. They're spirit beings, uh, but they have left their initial domain and have followed Satan and are the, the uh, enemies of God and, and God's people. So that's what an unclean spirit is. Obviously, this passage assumes the following truth, which you could observe by reading it, that unclean spirits can live inside of people. In, in their lives somehow. You know, I don't know how you think about that in terms of a geospatial situation. You know, like are they living in the, you know, some corner of the heart or something like that? No, they're in the, they're in the inner man, in the being. They, they, uh, in the inner being of the person, they, they're able to, to influence and be connected somehow with that person and live, and I think locally, inside of the physical body of that person. So they can live inside of people, which is a scary proposition for some because they wonder, well, could I be demon-possessed? And the answer, absolutely, if you're a Christian, absolutely not. You cannot be possessed by a demon. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be troubled by sinful and demonic activity from the outside, but it cannot be from the inside. And we say, well, where do all these bad thoughts that I have come from? Well, unfortunately, I have bad news for you. <laughs> they come from your own mind, which has the sin nature connected to it, and it's very a very active thing, so that like in Galatians, when the Bible says the spirit you know, lusts against the, the flesh and has a desires against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, and these two are at war with one another, um, you, you, have a, you can have a hard time of things, but that's not a demon. Unfortunately, it's closer to home than that. It's yourself. And it just reminds us that we are sinful people and need God's grace to overcome those, those difficulties. The Bible says that this uh, unclean spirit leaves the person. It doesn't tell us why he leaves. Um, you know, I don't know if this is a nomadic one or uh, he doesn't like to... 
you know, be tied down any one place in a long time or something like that? Uh, it doesn't tell us. It doesn't say that he's cast out. In fact, often, uh, maybe not often, but as I recall reading the New Testament scripture on occasions, the Lord, when he cast out a demon, said something else after he cast out the demon. What did he say? He said, go out of this person and enter no more into him. Don't come back. So there's like a, that's a, you know, the, the doors are bolted and locked now. You can't just come and go. We're not just telling you to go temporarily and come back. We're telling you to leave and leave permanently is what the Lord was doing. So uh, this fellow, uh, this, this demon fellow here leaves, and then it says he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. So it's like he's searching for greener grass, you know, on the other side of the fence, a better host person that he can indwell, I suppose, or maybe you know, to go back to the domain of the demons, wherever that is, not to go to the abyss, not to be locked up under chains in darkness like Second uh, uh, Peter and Jude talk about, where there are a, ho- a host of demons that God has incarcerated for now until that time when they'll be released, perhaps the tribulation time, as you've read in Revelation. But um, he doesn't find a place that's commodious for him to dwell in. I've, you know, I can't be sure about this, but a dry place is a place where there is not a suitable human host, and, and it's like an, a desert. You know, we find a desert uninhabitable. It's a place that's not very nice for any length of time. So he, you can't you know, find a place to lay down your head, um, and so it's a dry place. It's not very suitable for habitation. So he's looking for a good oasis and not finding any there in the place where he is. Um, he says, uh, it says that he uh, says, I will return to my house from which I came. Oh, if, o- if only it were a house like a stick-built house with a shingle roof and a basement. It's not that. His house is a person's body. And so he left that, and he says, you know, I'm not finding anything out here. I think I'll go back to where I came from. But when he goes back, observe that he finds it in a certain state. And this state is given in three words, empty, swept, and put in order. Now, two of those are okay, um, partially okay, swept and put in order. Everything's on the shelf where it belongs. You know, what is that saying? Everything has a place and everything in its place. That's all there. And, you know, the dust and the, and the, and the dust bunnies on the floor are all swept up. Everything's tidy. But it's also empty. There's something wrong with an empty house. An empty house, the house is a person. The empty person means they have nothing on the inside. They're just a, a shell of a human. They're just a human with no, no spirit indwelling, certainly no Holy Spirit. And that's a big problem for this person. And as we'll see in connection with the nation of Israel, they're really trying to live without God. They're living apart from faith in God, and so they're empty, and they're going to come to a worse situation. Well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So he finds it in this state, empty, swept, and put in order. And you know, for a demon, the life that's like that is not, it's not the best place for him. It's okay because it's, it's uh, unoccupied, so he, can, you know, he sees there's a vacancy sign there. He can say, well, I can take over that space. But he doesn't like that it's swept and put in order. So what does he do? He goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. When they do that, the picture that I get is that they go in there and they take everything off the shelves, and they bring all the dust bunnies back, and it's a mess. The life that's like this is a messed up life. It's not a clean, tidy, orderly room. Now, it's not empty anymore, but listen, that's not good. Uh, What the Lord is saying is, in the first place, the guy had a demon, that was bad. Then he became empty, got his life cleaned up, that was better. 
but it was not sufficient to protect him from what was coming. And then the eight demons came back, and, uh, or the one came back with the seven friends, so to speak, and they made the situation worse. So you have bad, okay, worse. And the Lord is not advocating either of those three, any of those three circumstances, although I would say we would agree that empty, swept, and put in order would be better. To me, this represents a person who is kind of an upright citizen, not a saved person. They're decent, but there's no protection in them from, from deception. Say when the great deceiver comes, the tribulation, and it says the mass of the population of the earth will believe the lie. They'll be deceived. They'll be swayed. You can see it today, my friends. Masses of humanity follow like lemmings after their governments who declare to them certain things are true and you must do this. And, you know, they just start following like robots without thinking. They're deceived. That, that is in the human condition and human nature. And that will happen again. So you don't want to be empty, swept, and put in order. You want to be filled with the Spirit and swept and put in order. Filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, these uh, eight come and uh, make the situation more miserable than the last. And the Lord Jesus is saying, in effect, to these people, this is what's going to happen to you. You have been, you know, in, in history now, and this is where I took the guys yesterday to think about the nation of Israel in terms of its history. They were in a pretty bad way. When you think about it, the northern kingdoms went into idolatry. God carted them off using the Assyrians. They were just destroyed. The southern kingdom, Judah and some of Benjamin, maybe faithful Israelites who flocked there to, for protection during the, after 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom was destroyed. They were decimated by Nebuchadnezzar in 605, 597, and finally 586 B.C. when he finally destroyed the city. Uh, Jerusalem and took more captives because of their wickedness. And the Lord told them, you're, you're being punished because of your idolatry. They were full of evil. Uh, remember when we read in Ezekiel what the Lord showed Ezekiel was happening there in Jerusalem? In the temple? It was terrible. And so the Lord punished them for their disobedience. As he said he would, remember? If you obey, I will bless you. Deuteronomy 28, if you disobey, I will curse you. God kept his word. And uh, remember the people said, we'll keep his word. We'll do it. We'll do it. Moses said, look, you can't keep his word. Joshua said, look, you can't keep his, his commands. They said, oh, we will. And they did for a while. The, the, the elders that outlived Joshua and the nation was faithful, but after that they faltered and failed. And it was hundreds of years of idolatry. The Lord gave them space to repent. They didn't repent. And so he punished them. So they, they kind of did have a, a uh, you know, stage one, like this guy here who has the demon. And then the Lord kind of did expunge from them that idolatry. They've never gone back to quite that same kind of approach to their religion since then. God saw to that. And so, but they're kind of empty, swept, and put in order. And the Lord Jesus coming onto the scene exposed that emptiness because they were against him. And they thought they had their lives all nice and, you know, religious and everything was good and everything like that, but it wasn't. They were empty. And the swept and put in order was mere, perhaps, at best, moral reformation. You know, it's like, this is a common application from this passage you'll read in commentary or study notes. You know, you, somebody's a, a drug addict, they smoke, they drink, they're on meth or whatever. You, you work with them to get them unaddicted, as it were, you know, uh, to, to get them clean, detoxed, everything. That's all wonderful and good. But if that's all that you provide for them, their life is empty, swept, and put in order but then they're going to fall to some other temptation. They're going to go into some worse state, perhaps, than they had before. And even if they don't, it's insufficient for them to, for godliness to come to God if all they do is just reform their behavior. 
moral reformation is not enough. We must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and entrust our keeping to him, believe in his death, burial, and resurrection and be saved. And he will send his spirit to dwell in us and we will be filled then instead of empty and swept and put in order. So the connection here to be explicit about it is that the nation is like the man. The nation had a very checkered history. The Lord expunged some of that from them, but now they were presently in this kind of empty state. The Lord has come to invite them to receive the kingdom of God. They have rejected that kingdom, and the Lord is warning them, look, you keep going down this path, all of you that are listening, you are going to be in a worse state than what you were before. And so that is the warning that he's saying to them through this little three-verse parable. Um, how, can a, how can the state of the man be worse? Well, we don't know exactly how demons work in a person's life, but if one is bad, two is worse, three is really bad, and beyond that, is just, you know, the moral output of their life and the eternal punishment that they face, the evil that's dwelling within, the things they think about, the plottings of evil. I can't help but think that there are some evil activities that we've seen even recently in our own area, in our own state, which I can't say for sure, but they certainly seem suspiciously demonic kinds of activities that go on. And we don't even know if we we don't, you know, kind of traffic in in, in those things. We don't even know a, a fraction of the evil things that go on in the world and the things that people think about and plan and do and and all of that sort of thing. Um so the Pharisees were on the verge of going into that eight demon worse state because they were committing the unpardonable sin. Uh, I didn't get to ask uh, this question of the men yesterday, but I I had it in my notes. Um, How would you express what we've just talked about in a single sentence? How would you express the truth of this passage? So when I said, now I'm going kind of to hermeneutics here, Bible study methods. When I said we'd take the passage apart, We'd put it back together and synthesize what we've learned, which is what I've tried to do here, kind of giving some observations and then walking through the text and telling you about it, which is really just what our pattern is in all of our expositional messages, and then applying it. But what would you do then if once you put the whole thing back together, what would be one sentence that you would use to describe that portion? This is one of those, you know, you think, oh, then this, that's, like a, that's like my high school English class. I've got to do this, you know, summarize this, this, uh, this article or this, uh, you know, passage that I'm reading or this book or something. But that is, when you can do that, then you're showing that you've really grasped the meaning of the passage. And so I try to come to that kind of statement, um, you know, in my messages. And you'll see them at the top of the notes. And I didn't pass these out, but these are on the website for you. Uh, at fbcaa.org slash docs. I called it, the title is The Empty House. But the truth is where I put this sentence. The nation of Israel was taking itself into a worse spiritual condition than they were before. That's what the Lord is saying to them. So it is with this wicked generation. You notice that the truth is not like, you know, if eight demons come into a person, he's worse off. That's a parable. The parable is meant to teach something. And you might come up with a better statement, and many homileticians have done so over the years and far better than I can do. But when I'm looking at this and I'm seeing, here's the summation of it when, it, when he talks about this wicked generation. I'm looking at it and saying the nation of Israel is taking itself into a worse spiritual condition than they were before. And my friends, I think that statement is historically not only biblically justifiable, but historically justifiable. You look at what happened after the Lord's death, burial, resurrection, 40 days, teaching the disciples the things of the kingdom of God, telling them to wait uh, to receive the Spirit of God in Jerusalem. They waited 10 days, Pentecost. They do that. The church is born. And what does God do? He gives the gift of tongues 
to distribute the message of the gospel in that early part of the church to all the nations so that they could talk about the wonderful works of God. And tongues are a sign of judgment. Isaiah 28, verse 14, if I have my address right. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What he's doing is he's saying, kind of like he did with the Apostle Paul, you guys didn't want it? I am now turning to the Gentiles. We are now going to build a people of God called the church, mainly out of the Gentile peoples of the world. And we're turning away from you, and for now 2,000 years, and for hundreds of years before that, I think a total of maybe 2,600 years, Israel has had no king. They have had no teaching prophet. They have had no temple operational, basically. They've had no sacrifice. They've had nothing. And that's not an anti-Semitic statement. That's a biblical statement. Oh, how we long for the children of Israel to come back and repent before their God. We love the, the Jewish people. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Read the Jerusalem Post once in a while and see what you find there. It's interesting. But we cannot close or make, turn a blind eye to the unbelief and idolatry of those people who have rejected their Messiah. And as the scripture says, someday they will come back to him and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. They will look upon him whom they pierce and they will realize with horror, we did that. We fulfilled the scriptures against our very own Messiah. And in the meanwhile, they're in a worse state than what they were before. I think that's what we're talking about here in this section of scripture. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to the end of our time tonight with this sobering reality that the nation fell into this, into the bad side of this warning. And I pray that as we see this warning, we will not do the same. That we will take the word of God as it's given to us, embrace it, love what you have taught us, and, 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 and accept it so that we will not fall into a worse condition. If there's somebody listening, perhaps online or here, that does not know Christ, Lord, let them not continue to sit in the uh, kind of no man's limbo or no man's land of morality, of personal moral reform, while their empty soul is open to the danger of being eternally lost. I pray, Lord, that you will fill them with the Spirit of God, cause them to come to faith in Christ and to appeal to him for a cleansed and good conscience. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.